we need to push back against the sterility of a utilitarian modern age that understands why we build a parking garage but doesn't understand why you would build a gothic cathedral. You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is your host, Stephen Roach. This is Season 2, Episode 5. I think if we're going to gain a hearing in our secular age, just hammering on about we have the truth and and we know what's good, I, I just don't see that that has much of a future. I'm not saying it isn't true. I'm just saying it isn't going to work. It's not going to get you anywhere. This is part two of my interview with author and pastor Brian Zond, who wrote the book Beauty Will Save the World. But before we jump back into that conversation, I wanted to say thank you to everyone who joined us at the Breath and the Clay Creative Arts Gathering in Winston-Salem, North Carolina this weekend. This was our fourth and largest gathering to date, and I met so many people who had traveled from all over the world to be there with us. And it was really encouraging to hear how so many of you have been impacted by the Makers and Mystics podcast and hearing the stories of how it's helped you on your journey of art and faith. And uh, it genuinely motivates me to keep pressing forward in this movement that seems to continuously be growing in momentum all around us. In the upcoming episodes, we'll be sharing some of the keynotes from the conferences, or if you want to own all of the keynotes from the workshops and lectures as well, you can pre-order digital downloads of those at thebreathandtheclay.com also. And with that, this is part two of my interview with author and pastor Brian Zond, Beauty Will Save the World. Ultimately, uh, the, the word Christian, I mean, it means, it, it's taken on a different meaning. It, you know, it's it's taken on in an adherent of a certain religion, and then in the eyes of our critics, it could be, uh, you know, a, a person that's self-righteous and on and on and on. But the, the, word, the word in its origin is simply a diminutive of Christ, so that it would mean something like a little Christ. And it was it was designed, it was first used as this kind of mild pejorative about Christians. They would say, you guys are just so obsessed with Jesus, you're just trying to be little Jesuses. Mm-hmm. And, well, so, so, you know, it doesn't matter if you are skilled in writing, painting, sculpting, that's sort of what we think of conventionally as the arts. Um, ultimately, we are all trying to live beautiful lives. And what we Christians have decided is the perfect form of beauty as a life is Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so we say, okay, and how do I interpret Jesus through my life? Mm-hmm. You know, Van Gogh says, okay, I'm going to interpret a night sky for you. And he takes his oils and his his canvas and he does that. Well, we are looking at Jesus. We claim we have seen beauty in him. And now we say, all right, I want to interpret that in my own life. And and my medium will be the life that I live. I don't have my copy of Beauty Will Save the World here at hand, or I would find in it the passage where I quote a song from uh, a band, an Irish band called Guggenheim Grotto. And the song is Philosophia. But the recurring kind of hook line in that song is, oh, to be a work of art. Mm. 
And we, we want to be, we long to be works of art. Mm-hmm. And well, if we're not, as Christians, we say, oh, okay, and I kind of know how, how to go about that. What I'm going to do is seek in my own life, in my own way, within a community of people attempting to do the same, to imitate, imitate the life of Christ or reinterpret his life through my life. And uh, I just and I, I know, I, I assume anyway, uh, that some of the listeners of this podcast will think, man, that just sounds, that just sounds weird. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think, I, I think it's because we had been so obsessed on, on the two approaches, the, the true and the good. Mm-hmm. So we're just arguing, this is true, this is true, this is true, this is good, this is good, this is good. And we've worn out our hearers. They long since turned off the radio. They're not listening to us anymore. Uh, so what avenue remains, I think, the beauty, the beautiful. But we don't get to protest and say, my life is beautiful. You just get to live your life. I mean, every artist knows that ultimately they create their work of art, but then others are going to decide whether it's beautiful or not. Yeah. And so we're going to try to live our life in an imitation of Christ, but it's going to be our neighbors that are going to decide whether that's really beautiful or not. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in one sense, we almost have to trust their judgment. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's where, uh, just using the analogy of the artist, um, the viewer really does have a participation in the making of the art itself. You know, And I think in the same way, our neighbor has a participation in the artistry of our lives as well. I've never thought about it that way before. Um, you know, the just speaking about the beauty and, and, and talking about, you know, truth, goodness, and beauty, and how beauty has often been an overlooked aspect in that trinity, so to speak. Um, it takes me all the way back to the narrative of the Genesis, in Genesis, you know, where it said that God made the trees of the garden beautiful, you know, beautiful to behold and to produce fruit. And I've always found that really liberating, just that, you know, God chose to make the trees of the garden, part of their purpose was to have an aesthetic beauty to them. It wasn't just to produce this practical food that was going to keep them alive, but part of God's design was for them to behold beauty. And I love that. That's one of my, I think it's Genesis 2-9, you know, but that's that's one of my favorite scriptures. It's just a little nugget there, but he made the trees both for beauty and for food. Well, one of the banes of modernity is that we have sacrificed everything almost on the altar of utility mm. uh, so that we are obsessed with the pragmatic and... Um, you, you see that even in the construction of places of worship, you know, they're, they're just, there are exceptions. There are exceptions. I, I, I understand that. And it's, it's a complicated thing, but we tend to build buildings that are very utilitarian. And this is why when I'm in Europe and I'm there usually three or four times a year, uh, I always make it a point to visit the cathedrals. Mm-hmm. You know, and I especially love the Gothic cathedrals that are, you know, a thousand years old or 800 years old. And you understand that the people that built this had a reverence for beauty that has been lost in our own time. Uh, And I hope that maybe we can begin to recover some of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. 
and, that, and that's especially true in the Protestant tradition. Yeah, uh, I'm very, you know, I, I'm very close with. Um, I'm, I'm a real ecumenical kind of guy. I'm an eclectic. I I get around. I've speaking a few weeks ago in an Orthodox conference, and I'm going to be with some Roman Catholics next week, and this is not uncommon for me. Mm-hmm. But I've become close enough to Catholics. That I kind of I can tell you what they say about some of us Protestants behind our back when we're not not there. You know, they, they they may love us, they may respect us, but they'll they'll whisper, but their buildings are so ugly. <laughs> <laughs> How do they worship there? Yeah, and I get what they're saying. Yeah. you know, and believe me, I understand the pull of you of utility, and I understand. Look, we just we just need a place to gather. Yeah. And just, you know, and it's money and expense. I get all of that. Yeah. But contending for beauty at every level, I think, is very important. Yeah. And and we need to find ways to recover that. Mm-hmm. And so maybe we just need to be more creative and say, look, th- there are ways to go about achieving beauty in worship space that it isn't necessarily the cost of building a Gothic cathedral. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's true. Even... Um in the worship arts, honestly, and I, I spent several years as a worship pastor and, and writing worship songs. I've, my music has carried me in many different arenas, but one of the struggles that I always had is that the creative unction inside of me was hard to, for me to harness it in such a utilitarian format. Like, I relate to Handel, I relate to, to Mozart, and I relate to these huge orchestral beautiful pieces that connect me to God just as much as a simple praise course or anything and I'm not knocking you know Sunday morning songs or anything but but sometimes I think for worship artists or even for Christian artists not only in music but in anything we have this uh, this thing that that makes us feel tied back to the utilitarian you know it's it's I don't know if that's just a, a result of the way our churches are structured or the what we've given value to, um, but I know for me, I had to really break out of that format in order for creativity and for true worship in my own heart to find expression through what I was making, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think we need to push back against the sterility of a utilitarian modern age that that understands why we build a parking garage, but doesn't understand why you would build a Gothic cathedral. I think we need to resist that. And I think, I think it's part of our Christian calling. Yeah. yeah. And, and not only is it part of our Christian calling, I, I, again, I want to stress this point. I think it's our way forward. Mm-hmm. I think if we're going to gain a hearing in our secular age, just hammering on about we have the truth and, and we know what, what's good. I, I just don't see that that has much of a future. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it isn't true. I'm just saying it isn't going to work. It's not going to get you anywhere. <laughs> so if we began to say, well, what if we really emphasized beauty, beautiful lives, uh, a, a beautiful presence within our community? And so we ask ourselves, okay, here's a, here's a sermon because I write sermons. So, all right, is it true? Yeah, I believe it's true. Is it good? Yeah, I think it's good. Is it beautiful? I'm not sure. Well, maybe I need to find a way to work in that, that third component. Yeah, yeah. You kind of lead into uh, something I wanted to talk about 
today as well, and, and it's one of my favorite chapters in your book, and I love the title, uh, I Am From the Future. And I think some of what you were just now saying ties into what you you write in that chapter, but you, you talk a lot about how, you know, as a prophetic people, to use that phrase, it's not so much making predictions about the future, but it's living and embodying the characteristics of the age to come. And I love I love that. I connected with that so much. Um, even from a, a creative point of view, you talked about um, in a world devoid of imagination and a world dominated by the way things have always been, that we get to be a prophetic witness to otherness and to holy imagination. I, I would love it if you'd elaborate on some of those ideas. It seems that in, I don't know how long this has been going on, a very long time actually, the church has been obsessed with changing the world. We see it as our task to change the world. And we, you hear that rhetoric a lot within our circles. We've got to change the world. But the problem with that kind of thinking and that kind of rhetoric is that it leads immediately to the temptation to take the most immediate means, and that is political force. Mm -hmm. And um, then we are tempted to turn away from the cross and embrace the sword of Caesar. Mm -hmm. And the church has done this for about 1,700 years in various ways, and it creates a big problem. So I, what I want to say is, no, the, our task is not to change the world, certainly not directly. Our task is not to change the world. It's much simpler. It's a much more uh, humble task. Our task simply is to be that part of the world that has been changed by Christ. Uh, that's enough. That We don't need to do more. I don't need to change the world. I simply need to be part of a community of people that are presently living under the reign and rule of Christ. And that's where I say, look, baptism, what baptism does for us is it inaugurates us into the kingdom of Christ here and now. Even though we don't see that, that kingdom fully present in, in the world yet, our baptism thrusts us into that. And so when I say I'm from the future, what I mean is that in baptism, I have come to live under the reign and rule of Christ here and now. And I use an illustration that this is what the church should be like. If you go to a movie and you're there to see, you know, the whatever, the, some, some particular movie. Well, everybody knows before the actual movie starts, you have the previews. Mm -hmm. And what a preview is, is it's what, two, three, four minutes of a coming attraction. This movie is not here yet. But they're going to show you enough of it that you get an idea of what it will be like. Mm -hmm. The church is to be a preview of the age to come. We're not perfect, uh, and we don't claim that. But we should be able, I don't think we really can for the most part, but we really should be able to say to the wider culture, look at our communities. This is where this thing is headed. This is what the reign of Christ actually looks like because we are from the future. We are embodying that here and now. And so what, what if churches engaged in this exercise? They said, all right, uh, if Christ were actually you know, ruling the nations right now, if Jesus Christ were president, if he were president and Congress and Supreme Court all wrapped up in one, 
what things would he abolish? What things would he that that we don't presently have would he install? What things uh, would he tweak? And then, to whatever extent we can, we seek to embody that, not impose that. Mm-hmm. Hear me clearly: not impose that upon others, but simply live that out within our own lives. Mm-hmm. I'm convinced that to the extent we can do this, people will find it beautiful. People will find it beautiful, and I think if we could do that, if we could just say, "I'm, we're, I'm, we're just, we're not interested in coercion." Yeah. The kingdom of God is without coercion. We persuade by love, reason, spirit, witness, rhetoric, if need be, martyrdom, but never by force. That's so good. I, I'm convinced if we could make it our chief objective, simply to embody the reign of Christ here and now in our own communities, I mean our churches, uh, and, and, and renounce any interest in imposing our values and, our, and how we understand the reign of Christ on others. We simply live it. We're, not, we're zero interest in imposing it on others. We simply embody it within our own communities. I believe most of the wider community would look at us and say, I don't know if I agree with them or not. I don't know if I believe them or not, but I have to admit that their lives look beautiful. That's so good. Yes. <laughs> Michael Cervantes, the, uh, uh, the author of Don Quixote, which I just reread when I was walking the Camino this fall, uh, said, it is the prerogative and charm of beauty to win hearts. And so we, we've tried, you know, browbeating and scolding and protesting and enforcing and, you know, our, our political coalitions and action committees. Well, why don't we just try to embody the beauty of Christ and let that be the charm that wins hearts? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's so good, man. I just want to repeat that over and over. I'll just, I'll just take that little phrase and, and uh, put it on repeat here. But <laughs> That's really good, man. I want to ask one more thing, and I know we're getting close to our, our hour time, but I wanted to ask you one, one last thing. I could, Man, it's hard for me to get away from that last subject because I, like, I feel like that's the kingdom. When people talk about the kingdom of God, it's like, yes, that's, that's as much kingdom of, as I've ever heard, is, and that's the incarnation of it. You know, That's the becoming the beauty of God on the earth. Uh, wow. I'm I'm really moved by that, and I I love what you say in that chapter, uh, that same chapter. I am from the future, just about how it's it's not so much about making these predictions about the future, but embodying the traits of that kingdom to come in the here and now. And uh, I think I heard someone talk about the the first miracle that Jesus did with turning the water into wine, and how, in a sense, uh, in a strange kind of way, that really points to what you're saying uh, because his mother told him to make the wine and he said my time has not yet come but yet he made the wine and i i, I forget yeah, how this, put it, but... this is a superfluous miracle uh, yeah <laughs> i mean you know lazarus is dead you know he raised the dead and we're gonna cleanse the leper and we're gonna save people from this storm and we're gonna feed the hungry right. this is this is <laughs> Yeah, they're running out of wine, but it wasn't like they never had any. Right. <laughs> they're just, you know, the party's about to be over because they're about to run out of wine. And 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 this is the first miracle. Yes. It's, the first, it's not it's not it's not restoring sight to the blind. It's not healing the lame. Yes. 
And, and it's, it's interesting how John, and I, and I could make this point, that the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are very self-consciously engaged in an artistic project. Mm-hmm. They all are. I mean, yes, they, they, are, they are working from certain historical facts, but they are placing these stories in a way that is artistic. For example, John is not really too interested in chronology. So he takes an event from the last week of Jesus, Jesus' prophetic protest of the temple. We call it the cleansing of the temple. It really wasn't a cleansing. It was a protest. Mm -hmm. He takes that and he puts it back to back. John chapter 2 has two stories. It's turning water into wine and then uh, cleansing the temple. So Jesus... Jesus makes so so the, the way the chapter works is Jesus makes wine to keep a party going and then he makes a whip to shut down a religious service. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I mean that's, yeah. But I tell you, I tell you the common person will go that's beautiful. I yes. love it. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. That's Jesus. Yeah. But it's also John working in a way to 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 paint it that way that's uh-huh. really good and i love just thinking about that as the first miracle that he did but you know uh moving on to my last question thomas merton whom i think we all love and appreciate you know he he talked about the hackneyed metaphor that has happened to the beauty of some of the Christian metaphors and how you see these signs along the road, especially here in the South where I live. I don't know if you still have them out there, but here you still see these prepare to meet God and Jesus saves kind of signs. And he talked about how the 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 beauty of those original metaphors had, had just been abused and, and we had been over-familiarized with these things until in some ways they... Not that they lost their power, but they lost their effectiveness uh, for people to engage the power within them. Yes. And in your last chapter, one of the last chapters in the book, A Shelter from the Storm, you began to talk about the church recovering uh, its proper form of beauty, and you talked about employing appropriate metaphors, and you talked about how the the prophetic imagination is fueled by metaphors. And, right. Um, I think so much about how all of the so many of the Old Testament prophets, all those guys were poets and and you know street performers in some ways, and just these out there guys. And um, and so often when when Scripture talks about the Lord spoke, he he spoke to them using puns and metaphors and riddles and all kinds of poetic language. But for me, as an artist that has worked both inside the culture of the church and outside of the culture of the church. I find that same concern that Thomas Merton talked about is is that some of the metaphors have been so overused. How do we as artists find our way forward recapturing the beauty that that is is inherent in in the the language of the Bible and in the language of our faith, but at the same time innovating and pushing forward and and calling people to come with us into into new territory. Do you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, one of the worst things that an artist can have said about their work is that it's a cliche. I mean, yeah. 
I mean, you know, some guy writes a poem, a song, does a painting, writes a novel, and if a critic would describe it as cliche, that would just be devastating. Mm -hmm. uh, we have to avoid. I mean, and it's 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 a it's a particular challenge we have in America, which has been saturated saturated with uh, Christian religious language, mm -hmm. and it becomes cliche, and people no longer hear it anymore. And so I think we have to attend to how are we going to go about using new vocabulary? You, you mentioned the fact, and I think that this is missed so often, that the Old Testament prophets were poets. Mm -hmm. They weren't, they weren't, don't think of them as the preacher at the First Baptist Church. That's not what they were. They were more like Bob Dylan. They were poets. And what they were trying to do was create alternative imaginations through the creative use of language. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to return to doing that. I mean, we have, their, we have our scriptures that we work with. And what the scriptures infallibly do is point us to Jesus. And so they're canonized, they're sacred texts for us. Uh, but rather than just repeat what they say in a culture where so much of that has become cliche, what we do is allow the scripture to point us to Jesus and then, with the help of the Spirit, come up with new language, new vocabulary to describe what it means that Jesus is the light of the world, mm -hmm. however you want to go about it. And, but that, that requires effort, mm -hmm. and that, that requires just the hard work of, of, of treating language in an artistic manner. And so I, I, I mean, I'm just going to, this sounds maybe a bit self-serving, but I'm just, I'm not trying to do it from that motive, but I will say in my writing and in my preaching, I think I can honestly say, well, you might think it's terrible, but you won't say it's filled with cliches because I really try to avoid that kind of language. I just, if you read my books or hear my sermons, I really avoid a religious cliche. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's that. That's a bit of advice there. Yeah. That, but it means it means you know being creative and working. How else can I say this? How can I say this in a way? See, we we talk about the gospel means good news. Mm -hmm. uh, our challenge isn't so much to make it good. Our challenge is to make it news. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so so how how do we make what we're saying about Jesus news? Uh, you, you want to make it good too. I get that, but that's the easy part. Mm -hmm. The hard part in for our context is to make it news, and to do that, we have to, I think, approach language in new ways. Yeah, that's so good. Damn. Well, Brian, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and and spending this time with us on Makers and Mystics. And I really appreciate. I like the name of, like the name of your uh, program. Yes. <laughs> Carl, Carl Rahner, great Catholic theologian of the 20th century, said the believer of the future will be a mystic or nothing at all. Yeah. <laughs> that concludes my interview with author Brian Zond, and I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. I'd like to invite you to keep up with us. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram. Hashtag Makers and Mystics, or look up The Breath and the Clay. You can also go to thebreathandtheclay.com and find out about upcoming events that we'll be hosting, uh, perhaps having us in your area. 
If you're interested in, in hosting Makers and Mystics or a Breath in the Clay conference in your area, uh, reach out to me through thebreathintheclay.com. And if you're so moved, you could also donate to what we're doing there. And we certainly appreciate your support. We'll see you next time.